Good evening. I hope you've had a great day today. Welcome to BVJ's Bedtime Stories. I'm Big Voice Jay, and this is a show where we get you ready for a good night's sleep with public domain short stories just for you. Links to all the stories can be found at the show notes at bedtimewithbvj.com. And if you'd like to support the show, there's a buy me a coffee link on every page and post. Tonight, we continue our story, The Hound of the Baskervilles, by Arthur Conan Doyle. The same thought had crossed my own mind. It was not as if the Barrymores had taken us into their confidence. Their secret had been forced from them. The man was a danger to the community, an unmitigated scoundrel, for whom there was neither pity nor excuse. We were only doing our duty and taking this chance of putting him back where he could do no harm. With his brutal and violent nature, others would have to pay the price if we held our hands. Any night, for example, our neighbors to Stapleton's might be attacked by him, and it may have been the thought of this which may Sir Henry... And it may have been the thought of this which made Sir Henry so keen upon the adventure. I will come, said I. Then get your revolver and put on your boots. The sooner we start, the better, as the fellow may put out his light and be off. In five minutes we were outside the door, starting upon our expedition. We hurried through the dark shrubbery amid the dull moaning of the autumn wind and the rustle of the falling leaves. The night air was heavy with the smell of damp and decay. Now and again the moon popped out for an instant, but clouds were driving over the face of the sky, and just as we came out on the moor, a thin rain began to fall. The light still burned steadily in front. Are you armed? I asked. I have a hunting crop. We must close in on him rapidly, for he is said to be a desperate fellow. We shall take him by surprise and have him at our mercy before he can resist. I say, Watson, said the baronet. What would Holmes say to this? How about that hour of darkness in which the power of evil is exalted? As if in answer to his words there rose suddenly out of the vast gloom of the moor that strange cry which I had already heard upon the borders of the great Grimpen Mire. It came with the wind through the silence of the night. A long, deep mutter, then a rising howl, and then the sad moan in which it died away. Again and again it sounded, the whole air throbbing with it, strident, wild, and menacing. The baronet caught my sleeve, and his face glimmered white through the darkness. My God, what's that, Watson? I don't know. It's a sound they have on the moor. I heard it once before. It died away, and an absolute silence closed in upon us. We stood straining our ears, but nothing came. Watson, said the baronet. It was the cry of a hound. My blood ran cold in my veins, for there was a break in his voice which told of the sudden horror which had seized him. What do they call this sound? he asked. Who? The folk on the countryside. Oh, they are ignorant people. Why should you mind what they call it? Tell me, Watson, what do they say of it? I hesitated, but could not escape the question. They say it is the cry of the Hound of the Baskervilles. 
He groaned and was silent for a few moments. A hound it was, he said at last, but it seemed to come from miles away, over yonder, I think. It was hard to say whence it came. It rose and fell with the wind. Isn't that the direction of the great Grimpen Mire? Yes, it is. Well, it was up there. Come now, Watson. Didn't you think yourself that it was the cry of a hound? I am not a child. You need not fear to speak the truth. Stapleton was with me when I heard it last. He said that it might be the calling of a strange bird. No, no, it was a hound. My God, can there be some truth in all these stories? Is it possible that I am really in danger from so dark a cause? You don't believe it, do you, Watson? No, no. And yet it was one thing to laugh about it in London, and it is another to stand out here in the darkness of the moor and to hear such a cry as that. And my uncle, there was the footprint of the hound beside him as he lay. It all fits together. I don't think that I am a coward, Watson, but that sound seemed to freeze my very blood. Feel my hand. It was as cold as a block of marble. You'll be all right tomorrow. I don't think I'll get that cry out of my head. What do you advise that we do now? Shall we turn back? No. By thunder, we have come out to get our man, and we will do it. We after the convict. Hellhound as likely as not after us. Come on. We'll see it through if all the fiends of the pit were loose upon the moor. We stumbled slowly along in the darkness. We stumbled slowly along in the darkness, with the black loom of the craggy hills around us and the yellow speck of light burning steadily in front. There is nothing so deceptive as the distance of a light upon a pitch-dark night, and sometimes the glimmer seemed to be far away upon the horizon, and sometimes it might have been within a few yards of us. But at last we could see whence it came, and then we knew that we were indeed very close. A guttering candle was stuck in a crevice of the rocks which flanked it on each side, so as to keep the wind from it and also to prevent it from being visible, save in the direction of Baskerville Hall. A boulder of granite concealed our approach, and crouching behind it, we gazed over it at the signal light. It was strange to see this single candle burning there in the middle of the moor, with no sign of life near it, just the one straight yellow flame and the gleam of the rock on each side of it. "'What shall we do now?' whispered Sir Henry. "'Wait here. He must be near his light. Let us see if we can get a glimpse of him.' The words were hardly out of my mouth when we both saw him. Over the rocks, in the crevice of which the candle burned, there was thrust out an evil yellow face, a terrible animal face, all seamed and scored with vile passions, foul with mire, with a bristling beard, and hung with matted hair. It might well have belonged to one of those old savages who dwelt in the burrows on the hillsides. The light beneath him was reflected in his small, cunning eyes, which peered fiercely to right and left through the darkness, like a crafty and savage animal who has heard the steps of the hunters. 
<clears throat> Something had evidently aroused his suspicions. It may have been that Barrymore had some private signal which we had neglected to give, or the fellow may have had some other reason for thinking that all was not well, but I could read his fears upon his wicked face. Any instant he might dash out the light and vanish in the darkness. I sprang forward, therefore, and Sir Henry did the same. At the same moment the convict screamed out a curse at us and hurled a rock which splintered up against the boulder which had sheltered us. I caught one glimpse of his short, squat, strongly built figure as he sprang to his feet and turned to run. At the same moment, by a lucky chance, the moon broke through the clouds. We rushed over the brow of the hill, and there was our man, running with great speed down the other side, springing over the stones in his way with the activity of a mountain goat. A lucky long shot of my revolver might have crippled him, but I had brought it only to defend myself if attacked and not to shoot an unarmed man who was running away. We were both swift runners and in fairly good training, but we soon found that we had no chance of overtaking him. We saw him for a long time in the moonlight, until he was only a small speck moving swiftly among the boulders upon the side of a distant hill. We ran and ran until we were completely blown, but the space between us grew even wider. Finally, we stopped and sat, panting on two rocks, while we watched him disappearing in the distance. And it was at this moment that there occurred a most strange and unexpected thing. We had risen from our rocks and were turning to go home, having abandoned the hopeless chase. The moon was low upon the night, and the jagged pinnacle of a granite tor stood up against the lower curve of its silver disk. There, outlined as black as an ebony statue on that shining background, I saw the figure of a man upon the tor. Do not think that it was a delusion, Holmes. I assure you that I have never in my life seen anything more clearly. As far as I could judge, the figure was that of a tall, thin man. He stood with his legs a little separated, his arms folded, his head bowed, as if he were brooding over that enormous wilderness of peat and granite which lay before him. He might have been the very spirit of that terrible place. It was not the convict. This man was far from the place where the latter had disappeared. Besides, he was a much taller man. With a cry of surprise, I pointed him out to the baronet, but in the instant during which I had turned to grasp his arm, the man was gone. There was a sharp pinnacle of granite still cutting the lower edge of the moon, but its peak bore no trace of that silent and motionless figure. I wished to go in that direction and to search the tor, but it was some distance away. The baronet's nerves were still quivering from that cry which recalled the dark story of his family, and he was not in the mood for fresh adventures. He had not seen this lonely man upon the tour, and could not feel the thrill which his strange presence and his commanding attitude had given to me. A warder, no doubt, said he. The moor has been thick with them since this fellow escaped. Well, perhaps his explanation may be the right one but I should like to have some further proof of it. Today, we mean to communicate to the Princetown people where they should look for their missing man. But it is hard lines that we have not actually had the triumph of bringing him back as our own prisoner. Such are the adventures of last night. 
Such are the adventures of last night. And you must acknowledge, my dear Holmes, that I have done you very well in the matter of a report. Much of what I tell you is no doubt quite irrelevant, but still, I feel that it is best that I should let you have all the facts and leave you to select for yourself those which will be of most service to you in helping you to your conclusions. We are certainly making some progress. So far as the Barrymores go, we have found the motive of their actions, and that has cleared up the situation very much. But the moor, with its mysteries and strange inhabitants, remains as inscrutable as ever. Perhaps in my next I may be able to throw some light upon this also. Best of all would it be if you could come down to us. In any case, you will hear from me again in the course of the next few days. Chapter 10 Extract from the Diary of Dr. Watson So far I have been able to quote from the reports which I have forwarded during these early days to Sherlock Holmes. Now, however, I have arrived at a point in my narrative where I am compelled to abandon this method and to trust once more to my recollections, aided by the diary which I kept at the time. A few extracts from the letter will carry me on to those scenes which are indelibly fixed in every detail upon my memory. I proceed, then, from the morning which followed our abortive chase of the convict and our other strange experiences upon the moor. October 16th. A dull and foggy day with a drizzle of rain. The house is banked in with rolling clouds, which rise now and then to show the dreary curves of the moor, with thin silver veins upon the sides of the hills, and the distant boulders gleaming where the light strikes upon their wet faces. It is melancholy outside and in. The baronet is in a black reaction after the excitements of the night. I am conscious myself of a weight at my heart, and a feeling of impending danger, ever-present danger, which is the more terrible because I am unable to define it. And have I not cause for such a feeling? Consider the long sequence of incidents which have all pointed to some sinister influence which is at work around us. There is the death of the last occupant of the hall, fulfilling so exactly the conditions of the family legend. And there are the repeated reports from peasants of the appearance of a strange creature upon the moor. Twice I have with my own ears heard the sound which resembled the distant baying of a hound. It is incredible, impossible, that it should really be outside the ordinary laws of nature. A spectral hound which leaves material footmarks and fills the air with its howling is surely not to be thought of. Stapleton may fall in with such a superstition and Mortimer also, but if I have one quality upon earth, it is common sense, and nothing will persuade me to believe in such a thing. To do so would be to descend to the level of these poor peasants, who are not content with a mere fiend dog, but must needs describe him with hellfire shooting from his mouth and eyes. Holmes will not listen to such fancies, and I am his agent. But facts are facts, and I have twice heard this crying upon the moor. Suppose that there were really some huge hound loose upon it. That would go far to explain everything. But where could such a hound lie concealed? Where did it get its food? Where did it come from? How was it that no one saw it by day? 
It must be confused that the natural explanation offers almost as many difficulties as the other. And always, apart from the hound, there is the fact of the human agency in London, the man in the cab, and the letter which warned Sir Henry against the moor. This, at least, was real, but it might have been the work of a protecting friend as easily as that of an enemy. Where is that friend or enemy now? Has he remained in London, or has he followed us down here? Could he? Could he be the stranger whom I saw upon the tour? It is true that I have only had the one glance at him, and yet there are some things to which I am ready to swear. He is no one whom I have seen down here, and I have now met all of the neighbors. The figure was far taller than that of Stapleton, far thinner than that of Franklin. Barrymore it might possibly have been, but we had left him behind us, and I am certain that he could not have followed us. A stranger, then, is still dogging us, just as a stranger dogged us in London. We have never shaken him off. If I could lay my hands upon that man, then at last we might find ourselves at the end of all our difficulties. To this one purpose I must now devote all my energies. My first impulse was to tell Sir Henry all my plans. My second and wisest one is to play my own game and speak as little as possible to anyone. He is silent and distrait. His nerves have been strangely shaken by that sound upon the moor. I will say nothing to add to his anxieties, but I will take my own steps to attain my own end. We had a small scene this morning after breakfast. Barrymore asked leave to speak with Sir Henry, and they were closeted in his study some little time. Sitting in the billiard room, I more than once heard the sound of voices raised, and I had a pretty good idea what the point was which was under discussion. After a time, the baronet opened his door and called for me. Barrymore considers that he has a grievance, he said. He thinks that it was unfair on our part to hunt his brother-in-law down when he, of his own free will, had told us the secret. The butler was standing very pale but very collected before us. I may have spoken too warmly, sir, said he. And if I have, I am sure that I beg your pardon. At the same time, I was very much surprised when I heard you two gentlemen come back this morning and learn that you had been chasing Selden. The poor fellow has enough to fight against without my putting more upon his track. If you had told us of your own free will, it would have been a different thing, said the baronet. You only told us, or rather your wife only told us, when it was forced from you and you could not help yourself. I didn't think you would have taken advantage of it, Sir Henry. Indeed, I didn't. The man is a public danger. There are lonely houses scattered over the moor, and he is a fellow who would stick at nothing. You only want to get a glimpse of his face to see that. Look at Mr. Stapleton's house, for example, with no one but himself to defend it. He'll break into no house, sir. I give you my solemn word upon that. But he will never trouble anyone in this country again. I assure you, Sir Henry, that in a very few days the necessary arrangements will have been made, and he will be on his way to South America. For God's sake, sir, I beg of you not to let the police know that he is still on the moor. 
They have given up the chase there, and he can lie quiet until the ship is ready for him. You can't tell on him without getting my wife and me into trouble. I beg you, sir, to say nothing to the police. What do you say, Watson? I shrugged my shoulders. If he were safely out of the country, it would relieve the taxpayer of a burden. But how about the chance of his holding someone up before he goes? He would not do anything so mad, sir. We have provided him with all that he can want. To commit a crime would be to show where he was hiding. That is true, said Sir Henry. Well, Barrymore, God bless you, sir, and thank you from my heart. It would have killed my poor wife had he been taken again. I guess we are aiding and abetting a felony, Watson. But after what we have heard, I don't feel as if I could give the man up, so there's an end of it. All right, Barrymore, you can go. With a few broken words of gratitude, the man turned, but he hesitated and then came back. You've been so kind to us, sir, that I should like to do the best I can for you in return. I know something, Sir Henry, and perhaps I should have said it before, but it was long after the inquest that I found it out. I've never breathed a word about it yet to mortal man. It's about poor Sir Charles's death. The baronet and I were both upon our feet. Do you know how he died? No, sir, I don't know that. What then? I know why he was at the gate at that hour. It was to meet a woman. To meet a woman? He? Yes, sir. And the woman's name? I can't give you the name, sir, but I can give you the initials. Her initials were L.L. How do you know this, Barrymore? Well, Sir Henry, your uncle had a letter that morning. He had usually a great many letters, for he was a public man and well known for his kind heart, so that everyone who was in trouble was glad to turn to him. But that morning, as it chanced, there was only this one letter, so I took the more notice of it. It was from Coombe Tracy, and it was addressed in a woman's hand. Well? Well, sir, I thought no more of the matter and never would have done had it not been for my wife. Only a few weeks ago she was cleaning out Sir Charles's study. It had never been touched since his death. And she found the ashes of a burned letter in the back of the grate. The greater part of it was charred to pieces, but one little slip, the end of a page, hung together. And the writing could still be read, though it was grey on a black ground. It seemed to us to be a postscript at the end of the letter, and it said, Please, please, as you are a gentleman, burn this letter and be at the gate by ten o'clock. Beneath it were signed the initials L.L. Have you got that slip? No, sir, it crumbled all to bits after we moved it. Had Sir Charles received any other letters in the same writing? Well, sir, I took no particular notice of his letters. I should not have noticed this one, only it happened to come alone. And you have no idea who L.L. is? No, sir, no more than you have. But I suspect if we could lay our hands upon that lady, 
we should know more about Sir Charles's death. I can't understand, Barrymore, how you came to conceal this important information. Well, sir, it was immediately after that our own trouble came to us. And then again, sir, we were both of us very fond of Sir Charles, as we well might be, considering all that he's done for us. To rake this up couldn't help our poor master, and it's well to go carefully when there's a lady in the case, even the best of us. You thought it might injure his reputation? Well, sir, I thought no good could come of it. But now you have been kind to us, and I feel as if it would be treating you unfairly not to tell you all that I know about the matter. Very good, Barrymore. You can go. When the butler had left us, Sir Henry turned to me. Well, Watson, what do you think of this new light? It seems to leave the darkness rather blacker than before. So I think. But if we can only trace L.L., it should clear up the whole business. We have gained that much. We know that there is someone who has the facts if we only find her. What do you think we should do? Let Holmes know about it at once. It will give him the clue for which he has been seeking. I am much mistaken if it does not bring him down. I went at once to my room and drew up my report of the morning's conversation for Holmes. It was evident to me that he had been very busy of late, for the notes which I had from Baker Street were few and short, with no comments upon the information which I had supplied and hardly any reference to my mission. No doubt his blackmailing case is absorbing all his faculties. And yet this new factor must surely arrest his attention and renew his interest. I wish that he were here. We'll continue our story on our next episode. We're always on the hunt for great stories like these to feature on the show. You can send your suggestions to bigvoicej at gmail.com. We've got a YouTube channel full of stories from the show. Go to tiny.cc slash bedtime. If you found some value in our storytelling tonight, don't forget to show the love. There's a buy me a coffee link on every post. Thank you so much for listening. Good night. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this broker. <laughs>